Hebrews 20, we see, 2020, we see Jesus. Increment 295. And I hope that you're listening to this in a group of two or three. It'd be great if you're listening alone or watching or viewing alone or both. But I think it's really good for us all to get used to the idea of essential church. Essential church is called when two or three or three are gathered together in my name. That makes a church. The first church meeting in the New Testament era happened with three. Jesus and two thieves who flanked him on either side in crucifixion. They were crucified together with Christ. It was a meeting. And so every time two or three gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, he's there in a special way, in a unique visitation by the Holy Spirit. So I hope that many of you throughout the listening audience, wherever you are in whatever state or whatever nation, that you're listening with someone else. It, that's not necessary, though, because the Lord is in you also individually. But I think we're going to have to get used to it. Essential church, the historical trends may require it of us someday or of the next generation. So it's good to get two or three together in the name of Jesus Christ. That's church. Today we're going to consider something, and incidentally, we are recording this message courtesy of the Embassy Marine, Emery Persinger, today, and we are recording on August 1st for Wednesday, August 2nd. So this is a almost live rendition. Today I'm going to be speaking on the three comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are not two, but three Comings, and this message is not so much anchored in any specific passage in Hebrews, though we're going to go to Hebrews 13.8, but it is a concept and a doctrine that is going to prove very helpful in the rest of our study of Hebrews and in, he in studies beyond Hebrews to note the three comings of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we begin in a way that we are accustomed to begin by entrusting our spirit to you, who is our God of doctrine. And we also present to you our, our bodies as a living sacrifice, as the new covenant priesthood, in order to demonstrate what is that good and perfect and complete in itself will of God in order to perform our reasonable worship, which is to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. We also commit our souls to you, Father, which are yours. You are our faithful creator, and we give our hearts to you in order to be taught by you. I do this specifically for myself, because as one who teaches, I require to be taught and even to be taught as I'm teaching. And we thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. There are several ways of construing the doctrine of the comings and the appearances of Jesus Christ. Let's first consider the comings of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
very popular is the notion of the first and second coming of Christ. We've heard much of it. If you're a Christian for very long, you've heard it spoken of time and time again. Less often considered, however, is the notion of three comings of Jesus Christ. Under this notion, Jesus Christ came the first time in his incarnation through the days of his flesh, culminating in his passion, his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead, followed by his ascension and his enthronement at the right hand of the throne of God, which is where we take up in Hebrews. He has come a second time, however, in the advent of the Holy Spirit, for the coming of the Holy Spirit is none other than the coming of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.19. Jesus himself spoke of this second coming in John's gospel, perhaps most notably in John 14, verse 18. He said, I won't abandon you as orphans. I'll come to you. This was not speaking of his eschatological universal appearing or coming, but of his coming to be with the church in the time between the two great alterations. Jesus spoke of his coming to his disciples in the context of the giving of the spirit of truth to be with you forever, he said in John 14, 16. To be with you forever. Jesus came the second time, therefore, in the Holy Spirit, who, again, is the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8-9, who is the means and mode of Christ being in us in Romans 8-10. Jesus speaks of his coming to be with his disciples and therefore with the New Covenant community. And he speaks of the coming of the Spirit of Truth as a simultaneous event. I'll say that again. Jesus speaks of his coming to be with his disciples, and of the coming of the Spirit of Truth as a simultaneous event. In John 14, verses 16 and 17, again, Jesus speaks of petitioning the Father to give the Spirit of Truth to be with his disciples forever. And that means with the New Covenant community, which Hebrews calls the assembly of the firstborn throughout this age. In John 14, 18, again, Jesus does not say the Spirit will come to you specifically, but I will come to you. This is the second coming of Jesus. This is a finer tuning of the word of God than we are used to. This is the second coming of Jesus in our consideration of the three comings today. He comes with and in the spirit of truth. Again, this is the spirit of Jesus, Acts 16.7, who is also the Holy Spirit in Acts 16.6. I hope you're getting this. The Holy Spirit, book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 6, who prevented Paul and his team 
from speaking the message in the province of Asia is the spirit of Jesus who did not allow them to go into Bithynia in Acts 16.7. The Holy Spirit in Acts 16.6, preventing Paul and his missionary team from going into Asia. This is, of course, the prelude to how he gets to Philippi by going west, young man. But that Holy Spirit, as he's called most frequently in the scriptures, in Acts 16.6, who prevented Paul and his team from speaking the message or preaching the gospel in the province of Asia, at least at that time, is the same as the spirit of Jesus, a unique moniker of the Holy Spirit, who did not allow them, that same team, to go into Bithynia, which is also in Asia Minor, in Acts 16.7. So in John 14.16-17, the spirit of truth is with you forever, and he remains in you, Jesus says. In Matthew 28.20, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm always with you even to the end of the age. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Jesus Christ is in you. And again in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And one more time, likewise, the Spirit of God is in us as Christ is is in us if in fact we belong to him Romans 8 8 through 10 Romans 8 really 9 through 10 and we do belong to him in Romans 1 6 because we've been bought with a price 1 Corinthians 6 20 and 7 23 now where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom you'll notice that what's going on here is also a pneumatology or a pneuma a study of the Holy Spirit. We're doing a theological exegesis of Hebrews and with that a pneumatology. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, 2 Corinthians 3.17. And that includes freedom from slavery to men, to trends, and to the ends of men who seek their own things and not the things of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 20 and 21. It's also the freedom where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is the freedom of knowing the truth. He is the Spirit of truth, after all. And he, where he is is the freedom of knowing the truth. Jesus said it this way, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So wherever the Spirit of truth is, there is that freedom the freedom indeed of knowing the truth as it is embodied in God's Son, embodied in God's Son, John 8.36. Jesus Christ, the liberating truth into which the spirit of truth leads us, leads in John 16.13, the new covenant community, the church of the firstborn. This truth is the reality of Jesus. 
the knowledge of which God our Savior wills for all human beings to have, as he also wills their salvation. For he who wills the salvation of all men wills that all men come to the knowledge of the truth, that truth being the truth that is Jesus, in John 14, 6, that is embodied or incarnate in him in Ephesians 4.21 and Ephesians 4.13 to back up a bit. For among the promises of the new covenant made effective by Jesus' blood is God's promise that, as God said, all will know me. All of humanity will ultimately come to the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ and him crucified. For to see Jesus is to see the Father, and to know Jesus is to know the God of Israel, the God who saves. Psalm 68.20 comes to mind. Hebrews itself, that heavenly homily that we're studying now since 2020, Hebrews itself is this knowledge of God into which the human author, a teaching pastor, has been led by the Holy Spirit and into which we are being led by the same eternal spirit, that's what he's called in Hebrews 9.14, by whom Jesus offered himself to the Father as God's spotless lamb, the one who has taken away the sin that has infected the whole of the cosmos, the entirety of the universe. Hebrews 9.14 and 9.26 compared with John 1.29 and 36. Now I'm going to take a, a slight side trip here, a slight discursus to ask this question because it is a trend I've seen even in scholarship or at least so-called scholarship lately. The question is, is the Holy Spirit a she? Is the Holy Spirit a she? Is the Holy Spirit's pronouns her and she, as many so-called scholars and at least ersatz theologians are averring today? Now, if the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus Christ, and he is, Philippians 1.19, then maybe it's not advisable to apply the pronouns her or she to the Holy Spirit. Even though applying feminine pronouns to the Spirit conforms to the current passing fashion of this present evil age. The word pneuma when in reference to the Holy Spirit and let's look at that word it's familiar to many of you, pneuma. The word pneuma, when it is in reference to the Holy Spirit, is almost always in the neuter gender, neither masculine nor feminine. Now, gender in the Greek language does not necessarily indicate the masculinity or femininity of the object, of the human object or the divine object. It does not necessarily, so I'm not making a case solely on that. An exception of the pneuma being in the neuter gender 
is in the majority text of Revelation 22:17, where the sacred text says, and the spirit, there it's the dative masculine singular adjective. That's not a whole argument, but it's a partial argument that against calling the spirit by her or she. The last reference of the spirit in the Bible, Revelation 22, 17, it says, and the spirit. And again, this is the majority text. The date of masculine singular adjective of Pneuma and the bride. Now, interestingly there, bride is also in the accusative masculine plural. That may be because of the reference to brethren collectively being masculine, but it is also indicative of men and women. The bride is made up of men and women. So it's curious that the accusative masculine plural is used for the word bride here. But in any case, the spirit, date of masculine singular adjective, masculine singular adjective, Pneuma, and the bride, accusative masculine plural, say, come. Now notice this, the coming that is requested here is the coming, the third coming of Jesus Christ. And for he is already present with the churches, walking among the lampstands, as we found in Revelation 1 through 3. He is the son of man who moves among the lampstands, the churches, holds the messengers of the churches or the angels of the churches in his right hand and speaks by the spirit to the churches so that which the spirit and the bride are calling for is the third coming of jesus christ on top of this the word parakletos which is a johannine term for the holy spirit parakletos P-A-R-A-K-L, long E-T-O-S. Parakletos is a descriptor of the spirit of truth. And that parakletos is in the masculine gender. Now that doesn't by itself argue that the Holy Spirit should have he and him attributed to his, to, or to be his pronouns, or to be the pronouns of the Holy Spirit. But it sure doesn't argue for the feminine gender of the Holy Spirit. These alone don't present a complete argument against calling the Holy Spirit by feminine pronouns, but they do militate against the obligation to do so. In some cases, those who make the case for the feminizing of the Holy Spirit have also bowed to the feminization of men in general and to the complaint of so-called toxic masculinity, opting also to demonize political figures who refuse to genuflect to their oftentimes socialist propagandized leanings. And that I find abhorrent. I find that abhorrent when theologians take a page or two to run down a political figure who's already a target for almost everybody. And that, to me, is a cowardly act. There's only one thing lower than a yellow dog, and that's a yellow dog Democrat or a yellow dog Republican. Let me explain what I mean. Someone will say, I'm a yellow dog Democrat. That's based on some famous saying where someone would say, I don't care who's running as a Republican, I'd rather vote for a yellow dog. So they're going to be a Democrat no matter who runs, 
and they're not going to be a Republican for who, who runs. Now, let's go the other side and say, um, say someone would say, I'm a yellow dog Republican. That means they'll vote for a Republican no matter who is running against the Republican. And so what I say is that a yellow dog either party is lower than a yellow dog. Because if you don't even take into consideration what a person represents in terms of values and virtues, what a person represents in terms of their conscience and their integrity, then you're lower than a yellow dog. So I just thought I'd say that recently because things get stuck in my craw sometimes. And I'm not here to react against those things, but it, I am going to speak and comment against social in, in a social commentary, because I abhor when theologians get on their high horse and run down any given political candidate. And they also demonstrate that they're buckling to the ideology of the times. And I don't care if they go to Duke University or Puke University. It's all the same. It's a matter, you don't have the right to run down political candidates, especially by name, and then say that you represent Jesus Christ and that you represent a gospel for all mankind. Now, I just thought I'd say that because I'm never going to read a book again by someone who does that. And a few scholars I've read, three I can think of right off the top of my head, do that. They do it, four I can think of right now. I'll never read any of their books again because they're tainted. They're tainted. Their theology is tainted. Now, we're all sinners, and we all don't represent Jesus Christ perfectly. None of us does. But that's one trend that I find abhorrent in our time. Now, some say that the spirit must be a she because the spirit does things that are analogously attributed to feminine creatures, like a hen brooding over the unformed earth in Genesis 1-2. But brooding, first of all, brooding is one of many, probably 20 or so possible meanings of the Greek word epitrepho there, or epiphero, I'm sorry, E-P-I-P-H-E-R-O, epiphero, or the Hebrew word rakhaf, it means also to hover. It means to move in general. So the Holy Spirit not only brooded like a hen, but we could also say hovered like a spacecraft. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's a spacecraft. It doesn't mean he's the Starship Enterprise or that she is the Starship Enterprise if you want to go along with the current trend of the evil age. Now... The Greek word can also mean to inflict there. So, but, all right, let me concede something. Even if brood, like a hen over her brood, is the intended poetic meaning in Genesis 1-2, then that in itself does not argue for the femininity of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, speaking to Jerusalem, said, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. 
but likening himself to a protective mother hen hardly made Jesus a woman. Jesus is decidedly a man of the masculine gender. He is the man Christ Jesus. He is the second man, the first man being Adam. He is the second all-inclusive representative man, masculine gender. Now, it's true that in the corporate Christ, there is neither male nor female because God does not make a salvific distinction there or a positional distinction between men and women. There is no inferiority or superiority one way or another. Jesus himself then said, I would have gathered you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But that doesn't mean that you call Jesus her or she and that his pronouns are feminine. And so no more does that mean that the Holy Spirit should be attributed femininity because he broods like a mother hen over the formless earth. Now, let's go take this a little further. The apostle and missionary Paul likened himself among the Thessalonian saints when he was at Thessalonica to a nursing mother. He said, I was like a nursing mother among you. And the word there is definitely a feminine indicator here, or it's a, it indicates a feminine function, T-R-O-P-H-O-S, trophos or trophos. So he said to them, I, am like, I was like a nursing mother comforting her children in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. That did not mean that we have to conclude that Paul is, after all, a woman. Furthermore, a few verses later, he compared himself to a father, pater. How's that one? P-A-T-E-R. Just a few verses down the road, he calls himself a father with his children. So I was like a nursing mother with my children, and I was like a father with my children. As a nursing mother, he was nourishing and comforting. As a father, he was exhorting. So this by itself does not make us conclude Paul to be a man either. Even more, it doesn't force us to conclude that Paul was a father of children. Paul knew himself, and I, I have particularly high regard for this, Paul knew himself quite simply, and I've adopted this for myself, as a man in Christ. A man in Christ. Oida is the word for to know fully. It's in a perfect tense. Oida, anthropon, en Christo. Paul said, I know a man in Christ. He's referring to himself in a third person kind of a way because he's going to talk about a trip that he took to the third heaven. And he wants to be a little bit, not quite anonymous about it, but he says, I know a man in Christ. Well, I know a man in Christ and it's me. 
And if you're a man and you're in Christ, you can know yourself not just as a man, but a man in Christ. If you are a woman and you are in Christ, you have every right to say, I know a woman in Christ and have that refer to you. That's 2 Corinthians 12, too, incidentally. Oida, O-I-D-A, oida in the Greek. Oida. For to know fully well. It's a word that means to know fully well. It's in the perfect tense, signifying a knowledge that is completely grasped by the knower. It's in the indicative mood, which signifies, which signifies a statement of incontrovertible fact. It's in the active voice, meaning that Paul is the one who knows himself very well as a man in Christ. The apostle even required in all the churches which he founded that the women in the churches would cover their heads and that the men's heads remain uncovered. That's pretty strange, you say. And some branches of Christianity, probably some of them pretty fringe, still practice this. This may seem strange to us in this so-called modern or postmodern era, and I certainly would not require this custom in our little church, but it makes one pause and reflect on the distinction of genders, and most of all to reflect on Christ, who is the head of every man. 1 Corinthians 11.3 Christ is the head of every man is profound because Christ, the Savior, is the head of every human being as the representative human being. The apostle was pretty adamant that the men in Corinth, some of whom were tending to become effeminate, would, quote, act like men. That's toward the end of the epistle in 1 Corinthians 16. Act like men. There was, again, probably quite a reaction to what people call toxic masculinity. Apparently, the toxin in men is testosterone. Act like men. Are you a man? Act like a man. Are you a woman? Act like a woman. All of this may seem a little off topic, but it does pertain to pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Though it's not directly pertinent to our present subject, it's nevertheless pertinent to our current times in which there is a decided movement to feminize men to make them ready for conquest or ready for tyrants to control them completely, to pacify them and to control them, to do its bidding. Maybe to lock them down again. Now, I'm going to move into another increment of this increment, a sub-increment, called unashamed hope in the second and third coming of Christ. If we're to consider the coming of Jesus Christ in the coming of the Spirit to be his second coming, that's under our present consideration. I'm not trying to change 
the whole view of Christendom, which talks about his first and second coming. We know what that's meant. We don't want to jump on somebody and say, oh, that's not his second coming. That's not what we, that, that misrepresents our church when people do that. You don't jump all over somebody. I'm just making a fine distinction here about three comings instead of just two. It's just a finer cut with the knife, the blade, or the word. Now, if we consider the coming of Jesus Christ in the coming of the Spirit to be his second coming under our present consideration of three comings, then we have to consider his universal apocalyptic coming when he is seen by every eye, Revelation 1-7, bowed to by every knee and gratefully praised by every tongue, Philippians 2-9-11. We have to consider that the third coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean, again, this does not mean that we have to reject any notion of what people call the second coming. We know what we mean by that. We know what others mean by that. We know that when people speak of Jesus' second coming, that they generally mean his visible, glorious coming to the earth. So we needn't jump to correct them. I'm making a finer cut with the blade of the word here. That's all. It's important to distinguish three comings of Jesus Christ from a practical standpoint as well as a theoretical or a theological standpoint. In Romans 5.5, 5, the scripture speaks of hope not being ashamed. One reason why our hope for the glory of God, Romans 5.2, is not ashamed is because while we hope for an as yet unrealized hope that will be actualized in Jesus' third coming, He has actually come to us in the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in our inmost being, our hearts. That includes our conscience, as we're going to see. Not today. Our hope is not ashamed, meaning it's not totally unrealized, because Christ Jesus, our hope, in 1 Timothy 1.1, make that 1 Timothy 1.1, is already in us. Let me say that again, please, because it's sort of significant. Our hope is not ashamed, as Romans 5.5a says, or totally unrealized, because Christ Jesus, our hope, is already in us and with us. We have no reason to be embarrassed by some supposed delay of Jesus coming. Peter predicted that in 2 Peter. Some are going to come mocking and say, where is the hope of his coming? But we need not be so-called embarrassed by some supposed delay. of his. He hasn't delayed his coming at all. He has come to us in the Holy Spirit already. He has come to us and he is with us. His third coming is to be expected. It might seem like he's delaying, but he isn't. For with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years, so don't tell me he's delaying on his schedule. We have no reason to be embarrassed by some supposed delay of Jesus' coming. Nor do we have to cave in to some idea that he's never going to come in universal glory at all. And salvation, as some are averring, as if they are intending a war on hope. Some are intending a war on hope. They've actually said, don't expect Jesus to come and save you. 
Don't expect him to come and save the world, as if that's never going to happen. And they are robbers of hope, and of course they fall into the realm of heresy. So let me say this again, because this is very practical, and I think it could even be helpful. We have no reason to be embarrassed by some supposed delay of Jesus coming, nor do we have to cave in to some idea that he's never going to come in universal glory and salvation, as some are averring today, as if they're intending a war on hope. Jesus has come the first time to effect the radical alteration of the universal and human condition, but he has also come to us and is with us in this time in between. He will come the third time to effect the radical alteration of the universal and the human condition, even liberating it from slavery to corruption, to death, and decay. But he has also come to us again and is with us in this time in between. And he abides with us in this current agona. And that he who suffered for us in his first coming suffers with us in his second coming or in his present presence with us. I'm going to say that again because this is new ground. He has also come to us and is with us in this time in between, the alteration of the situation, alteration of the condition, and abides with us in this current arena of contention, in this current clash of the ages. And that he who suffered for us in his first coming suffers with us in his second coming, in his present presence with us. That goes to Hebrews 2.17 and 18, our merciful and faithful high priest who suffers with us in Hebrews 4.15. For the express purpose of appealing effectively to the saints in Corinth, this is interesting too, this is new ground also, so I want to be careful as I proceed here. For the express purpose of appealing effectively to the saints at Corinth, Paul likens himself by a kind of analogy to Jesus the Messiah by saying that he plans to come to them again and that he hopes to find them in a better condition of, or of behavior than they are currently in. So in 2 Corinthians 12.20, and this is just the germ of a doctrine that can be developed into a very rich and treasured doctrine but this is just the germ of it in first corinthians second corinthians rather 12:20 the concerned apostle can candidly writes this i'm afraid of coming and finding you not the way i want you to be and also of not being found the way you want me to be this is kind of a an analogy to christ coming Paul puts himself in the place of the Messiah, not in terms of equality, but in terms of analogy. Even more evocatively, in 2 Corinthians 13.1, he writes, and please pay careful attention to this, and if you're seated and not in a moving automobile under which you are in, which you're control, in control of, 
if you're in, able to, you can look at your Bible and read in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, that Paul wrote to them, this is the third time I am coming to you. Triton tuto ercomai pros humas. That's my improperly pronounced Greek phrase. This is the third time I am coming to you. My question is, is Paul alluding consciously or maybe even subconsciously to three comings of Jesus, the Messiah? It's not impossible, of course, but this is kind of an unprocessed idea that I've brooded on. Doesn't make me a hen, but I've been brooding on this in 2 Corinthians, so I won't make too much about it right now, except to note, because it's unprocessed so far, except to note that Paul speaks of not just two, but three significant apostolic comings to Corinth, one of which was impending. These are parousias of Paul. So, we'll close with this. What about Hebrews? How does Hebrews figure into these three appearings? And there are many ways in which it does. So my question is, we're busy with the study of Hebrews. How do the three comings relate to that sermon? Well, much in every way, as Paul says in Romans, much in every way, the three appearings appeal to and apply to our study of Hebrews. Not least, in Hebrews 13, 8, where we'll go in closing, where the teaching shepherd proclaims this, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and to the age, which means forever. So can we not say that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the same Lord and Savior yesterday in his first coming, today during his second coming and presence in the church for the world in the midst of world occurrence and forever from his third coming onward? Does not the statement Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever evoke the thought of three comings. I think it does. Still more pointedly, there is something coming up, not too soon, but soon enough, in Hebrews 9, the subject of two or three appearings or appearances of Jesus Christ. There are two appearances of our great archpriest, but there are also three appearings. Talk about a fine distinction made by the blade of the word. That's coming up, and that's coming up in Hebrews. That, Lord willing, is coming up. So, Father, we thank you that you have opened up a new door for us, a door to a fresher understanding and we pray that you'll allow us to fully grasp the idea of the three comings of Jesus Christ, that it may yield in our hearts and minds a greater occupation with him and bring us into a richer and more enriched fellowship with him and even increase our hope of his third appearing even as we recognize his presence among us now, suffering with us as he suffered for us so incomprehensibly in the first advent, his first coming yesterday. Amen.